Welcome to the Unboxing Your Packaging podcast, where we pop packaging out of the box thanks to the shared experience of inspiring businesses and experts. I am Colleen Regou from Look for Loops. My passion is to optimize the use of resources and designing out waste. This show aims to help you redesign, reuse, and recover your packaging. Have you ever wondered if the environmental claims or logos on your packaging were completely legit and adequate? Did you dive into it? Welcome to our new series, Certification Spotlight, Truths and Traps. We will unravel the mysteries behind the logos, certification and declaration you find on packaging. What do they really mean? When and where are they applied? Do they sometimes conceal key information? We will weight their pros and cons and explore the added value for everyone in the value chain, including end consumers. This series is the result of collaborations with experts who joined us with enthusiasm. Whether you are in the packaging or packaged goods industry, these episodes aim to equip you with knowledge and critical thinking to decipher what is too often put forward as foolproof guarantees. Use this information in your discussions and if you ever need assistance, don't hesitate to contact a professional We are here to help you find solutions and make informed decisions. Today, it is all about the Forest Stewardship Council certification. Let's start. Hi, Peter. Hi, Colleen. How are you? Fine. I'm very glad you are on board of this series. And before digging into the FSC, so Forest Stewardship Council certification in itself, I would like you to explain in a few sentences why you have expertise on this certification in particular. Sure. Uh, I've been working on forest certification issues for some time now, uh, since the late 1990s, first with the BC Ministry of Forests, and then with a series of non-governmental organizations, most recently with Canopy, that looks at... Uh, how forest products enter the supply chain and they they try to make sure that in addition to being FSC certified that they also do not come from ancient and endangered forests. My PhD evaluated the changes that companies were having to make in order to meet FSC certification and that included, you know, on the ground impact as well as looking at how governments are involved in providing that assurance of sustainability. I've since sat on various technical and advisory bodies related to FSC. I've provided consulting services related to forest certification. And then currently, I am a lecturer in the Master of International Forestry Program at the University of British Columbia. 
That's great. And you are really into it. And because you mentioned just Canopy, they were our guests for two previous episodes. So if the people want to, to dig into this, they, they can look at this episode as well. I will put them uh, in the show notes for their interest. And because we are in an audio podcast, could you give us a short visual description of the logo? Sure. It looks like a, a green check mark that then goes into the shape of a tree on the other side. And your listeners could look at the back of different uh, pieces of paper that they might have around their house, uh, envelopes or books. And sometimes you can see that uh, FSC or FSC mix logo uh, tree in a check mark. And that's great. Yeah. That, let's make people look around them. It's a, it's a great idea for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, because of this certification, let's start from the beginning. So what's the origin of this certification? So Forest Stewardship Council originated about 30 years ago as a way to differentiate forest products that met certain environmental, social, and economic criteria. So this came in the wake of you know, the 1980s major global concern over deforestation that people were witnessing in the Amazon, Southeast Asia, as well as uh, unsustainable logging that was happening in British Columbia and, and elsewhere. So people really wanted to not only boycott bad sources of forest products, they wanted to be able to look to a label that they would be provided assurance that those products were manufactured and, and harvested in a sustainable way. Yeah, that's super interesting. And we will see how it's allowed to cover all these criteria or not, or and or not. Um, mm -hmm. But at least it's a very important why. And let's jump into the how now. So what is its source of funding? Because, you know, often money is a big deal here to make something happen. And so what could we say about funding, about this certification? So FSC receives uh, funding from their membership. So it's a membership governed organization and those members pay their, their membership fees. There's also fees associated with getting certified. That's also paid into the system. And then I believe they're also supported by philanthropic sources. So donations received from other sources and Depending on the country and depending on which office, there may be different combinations of these sources. Would you say that specific industries or companies have a big interest in being member of this certification? Or is it mm -hmm. just like, oh, I really need this material? So what is behind all of it? Mm -hmm. So there's different motivations. There's some companies have received a signal from their buyers that they are not going to be able to sell anymore into a market unless they have this certification. Particularly the European uh, market has been very clear that they have higher uh, expectations in terms of this uh, certification. Uh, in other places, the companies themselves consider it a way to differentiate themselves from their competitors. They can say they've got this uh, certification and they think that maybe their, their competitors can't get it. So that really helps them achieve a market niche that helps protect their customers. 
Uh, so there's different reasons why a company might do it. Sometimes it's reputational. So if a company is harvesting from an area that's very controversial, they may seek to get certified as a way to protect against uh, some scrutiny that might come from uh, harvesting from that area. Very interesting to see that sometimes it's not really like for the sake of <laughs> doing well. It's also for the sake of covering your reputation and so on. So it's super interesting to remember <laughs> that as well, of course. And because you mentioned also the specificity of some region, let's talk about where you can find the certification and to what region it's in application. So FSE is a global program. Its headquarters are in Bonn, Germany, with national offices around the world. I took part in the development of the regional standards for British Columbia and then the national standards for Canada. And what happens there is the global principles and criteria are taken and interpreted to be applicable to that local level because we know that the forests of you know tropical Africa are going to be different than temperate rainforests of British Columbia it's really important that these standards are reflective of the local realities and it's also very important that those standards are negotiated and agreed upon by the stakeholders that are are there so the stakeholders for british columbia are going to be very different than the stakeholders for another forest region so that's a really interesting process to watch play out because you need to have the global acceptance and the global uniformity at the high level but you need the local standards to be tailored and match the realities of a very, very different forest. So I find that process really, really fascinating. The, the other thing I would say is that the way that those standards are developed is often reflective of the capacity at the local level. So where I've seen there be a lot of capacity for you know environmental groups and indigenous groups, like we did in British Columbia, that can often result in uh, a very high bar uh, in terms of the standards and a lot of capacity it takes to negotiate those standards. In other places where you know the local people may not have as much capacity, they may not have access to internet or computers, uh, we often see economic interests and the economic chamber may be more dominant in those discussions just by simple virtue of the lack of capacity of the other participants. Oh, yeah. So that's really important to put the finger on this, right? Also, maybe to have the capability to push the boundaries of those certification. It's also important to support those communities that has words to say, for sure. Mm -hmm. and, and because now we have an idea of, okay, where does that come from, where it applies and so on. So for what kind of end product you can use this certification, mm -hmm. what kind of field of application you have seen the most mm -hmm. around that? I think that It works in a couple different ways. One way is at the consumer level. Consumers may see these logos that appear on their products and they can make decisions based on that logo and the assurance that that provides. What we're seeing is at the company level, say uh, a company like Ikea or Home Depot, they could also make commitments at the company uh, or enterprise level that would say, you know, all of our products are, 
are going to be from this type of source. So even though the consumer might never see it, there is this commitment that might exist at sort of a higher level. And then a whole nother level is sometimes governments or municipalities might make commitments. So for example, you know, in the lead up to the Olympics, a country might say, well, if we hold the Olympics, all of our materials will come from a certified source. Or a municipality might make a commitment saying all of our procurement for all the paper that goes into Vancouver's you know, municipal government usage will all come from a certified source. So this, these requirements operate at different levels. The individual consumer can make a choice, the company can make a choice, and then governments as a whole can make choices. Okay, perfect triangle. I always mentioned the inaction triangle. Now you're pushing it through like... This is the enable triangle, right? <laughs> That's you, you can act on different kind of level. It's important to say that as well. And now we are coming to the certification criteria. So what kind of criteria do you have to meet to be certified as FSC? Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, there's these very high level criteria that at the international level, they are kept very broad. So these criteria could apply just about anywhere. And the principles of you know, maintaining ecological function, the principle of respecting Indigenous rights. So these are very high level. And there's 10 principles, and I believe 56 criteria under those 10. So that applies everywhere in the world. And ultimately, you need to find out what that means in coastal British Columbia, what that means in Cameroon, what that means in Amazon. And there's where things get really interesting. We adapt these certification criteria to fit the local context. And that's a negotiation. That's a tough negotiation because there's some people that might want to keep it very easy in order to make certification very close to what is, you know, already happening in terms of forest management. And then there's people that might want to see something very different and, and they want to see on the ground change. And so these certification standards development process that we see playing out, even though it sounds very nerdy and very technical, it's actually fascinating to be a part of because you really see people are very passionate about forests and they're passionate about wanting to see change and the companies involved are very concerned about restrictions that are going to be placed upon them that might make it uneconomic to log. So this is where we see the most contentious issues playing out. And I find it really interesting to be a part of. I've, I've taken part in those standards development processes and I find it really interesting to compare. So we've done comparisons of, you know, how does this look like in Sweden? What does this look like in BC? You take the very same principle of maintaining ecological function and you come out with this very different standard that still has to meet some of these criteria. They have to be harmonized so they can't be too different, but they need to be adapted to the local reality. Yeah. Uh, so it is kind of the same global criteria everywhere, but adapted locally. That's right. I can definitely see <laughs> big differences there for sure. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and now on the business side, what does it imply in terms of the implementation process? Have in mind like audits, conformity testing, 
in terms of certification, what, what does it require? So the FSC only sets the standard. They don't actually apply the standard. So this is really important that they, they keep these functions separate. So they have certifying bodies, which are private companies or organizations that set the sort of an, an audit that a company would then have to meet. And all that certifying body is doing is their role is to objectively and neutrally apply that standard to that forestry company to see if they meet the criteria as reflected in that you know, national standard or regional standard. And so this is a bit controversial because the company who's getting audited actually pays for that service directly to the certifying body. So there's some people, you know, especially NGOs feel like that can be a bit problematic if that uh, payment is resulting in a relationship between that company and the certifying body, which is a bit like a, a client and, and pay for service arrangement, which could lead to a situation where if certifying body is known to be very tough in how they're applying this standard, they may be less likely to be hired versus uh, a company that is known to be industry friendly, for example, might get more business. And so that's been an ongoing debate within FSC about how that, that audit uh, and the conformity testing is done. Uh, is there a way that we could do it that would be more kind of arm's length uh, and, and avoid that perceived uh, conflict of interest? There was a very interesting expose done by a coalition of journalists, which I will provide the link uh, for your show notes, but it, it investigated a company, KPMG, and it looked at how KPMG had sort of been coming to known as a certifying body, you could say that could be hired if you didn't want too hard a time. And so I thought that was a very interesting investigation. And I really recommend your listeners take a read if they want to understand some of the politics of the certifying bodies. That's great. I, I will surely put that in the show notes. And while I hear here's difficulty to be still attractive to make impact <laughs> and at the same time, uh, for the certification body against any conflict interest. It's really, it's all this game of finding the right balance. And I think it's an ongoing process all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So really, it's also something to be aware of when you mm -hmm. you want to be certified, uh, for sure. I want to go into the pros and cons, I will say, of the certification now. Mm -hmm. So how would you summarize the strength of the FSC certification? I think FSC has made some major improvements in how different voices are given standing and, and a say in the way forest management takes place. We know that FSC provides a more balanced uh, system of governance in terms of ensuring that there's equal representation from economic, social, economic, and indigenous, what they call chambers, 
within Canada, you know, the governance of FSC Canada, for example, and the way that those board members are elected is very accountable to those different chambers, which I think is a very, very big difference between that and some of the other forest certification systems, which I hope we'll get a chance to chat about later. But basically, we have a, a system within FSC where you've got representation, you've got accountability. Uh, if I have a problem with the way that the FSC system is being governed, I have a channel through which I can bring my problem. I can bring a motion to the General Assembly as the highest sort of body of you know governance. There's also channels within at the national level, at the regional level that I can bring forward my issues. Now, it's not perfect, and there's absolutely some criticism around, you know, how FSC conducts its business. There's a lot of people that have brought up very difficult examples of bad certifications, what they would see as being things that should not have been certified. So it's not to gloss over and pretend as if everything's perfect, but at least I can say that there's some channels, which if I have a problem, I am able to pursue a challenge of, of a certification. And I have people that are elected that are supposed to represent uh, my interests that if I have a problem with them, I, I'm able to run for that position myself. I could organize to get that person kicked out and kicked off of the board of directors, which is totally different than the other certification systems, which don't have that kind of accountability and balance between stakeholder interests. So that that's sort of one, one thing that comes to mind. The other thing is the Accreditation Services International, or ASI. This is a body that is above FSC that is supposed to be like a third-party watchdog over FSC that you can appeal to. If you think FSC is applying their standards in a weak way, you think a, a certifying body has done a bad job at certifying something, you can appeal to ASI and they can investigate complaints. Again, this is totally different than with the other certification systems that don't have an appeal body and they don't have that recourse if you feel like something is going wrong. Hmm. So basically there is kind of a liability framework that prevents some of problems or situation that you don't want at all. Mm -hmm. And at the same mm -hmm. time, it's not perfect. And and I hear also that it, we still speak about forest management, right? Which means we extract virgin wood. And I think you, you will come to that a little bit later as well. Mm -hmm. And and also when you mentioned you can address a concern, it makes an echo for me to the big question of origin as well. Like, should I choose certified tropical wood versus local sources that I can even check by crossing the road? Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of caricature here, but like it's all this question as well, right? So yeah, the, it's not because you say something that is verified. So it's great to have at least the opportunity to address that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we have already raised some weak points, but do you have mm -hmm. other weak points that you want to mention? Sure. Well, from my perspective, I think FSC over time has weakened its standards. And the main way in which I have been concerned in the way that that has happened is something called controlled wood. And controlled wood was a decision 
FSC made to allow the mixing of uncertified sources with certified sources and to be able to put that on the market and on the shelf for consumers to buy, even though it's actually a mix of totally not certified wood at all. And so why FSE did that is because there was such a limited amount of actually certified wood that they weren't able to make many products and have mills that were only getting FSE certified trees getting delivered to the mill. So just practically, they had to be able to say, well, there's going to be a mix of different sources. And if you're going to be mixing these sources, at the very least, we need to make sure that they don't come from these, you know, illegally logged forests or forests harvested in human rights violations and a handful of other very, very bad sources that would bring reputational risk. So FSC called these sources uh, that were controlled, that were being let in uncertified, but somewhat controlled. They call it controlled wood. And this has confused everybody. Okay. Like everyone I talk to is totally confused. They think controlled wood means certified and it's absolutely not. It's so far from certified and, and what it's meant in Canada is a very large volume has been deemed to be controlled wood. That's actually potentially very problematic. There's forests that are old growth and primary forests. Uh, there's forests that, that are in violation of uh, Indigenous people's rights because a, a large swath of Canada is being harvested in the absence of any agreed you know, treaty or especially in British Columbia, any, any established agreement. So we've got lots of areas that are quite complicated in the world that are entering the FSC system as controlled wood that, and I sat on the controlled wood technical committee for like five years and I saw, I saw how that standard was made. I've, I've seen what resulted. I have no confidence in that system. So I have a really troubled relationship with FSC because of the one hand, I want it to succeed. I don't want to see it go the way of, you know, the big industry certification systems. But what I've seen is because of the growth of the industry-led systems, FSC has felt the need to compete with those systems. In order to compete with the big industry certification systems under the PEFC label, which again, I'm hoping we'll get a chance to chat about that soon. But just to say that FSC, I think, has absolutely felt the need to increase the volume of certifications, of hectares certified, of tons of wood certified, because it needs to compete. It needs to be visible on the international scene. So I think that's absolutely intertwined, this rise of the competition of PFC and the willingness of FSC to make it easier to get certified. And I, I see that as a real weak point. And I, I really hope that people continue to differentiate between these systems because they're absolutely black and white uh, difference between FSC and, uh, and the industry-led systems. Uh, I think that over time, FSC has become a little bit easier because of, uh, again, this, this pressure, but, and, and potentially some of the industry systems 
have become a little bit more difficult to meet because they felt pressure as well to come over to mm. have some of the characteristics that FSC has. But overall, I would still not put the FSC in the same category even as the PEFC. It's just a very different certification system as a whole. The other thing that I would say is a weak point of FSC is where things get complicated. So where there's a lot of process, where there's a lot of you know standards, documents to review, this really favors the well-resourced economic chamber. And I've seen this play out. I've been on those committees and I've seen how economic chamber often has the capacity to, you know, they, they get number of consultants and they can have a lot of staff time devoted to reviewing hundreds of pages of standards and they can provide detailed comments. Well, a lot of the people that are coming from the social chamber, the indigenous chamber and the environmental chamber, they may all be volunteers doing this in the margins of full-time work that is totally separate. They may not have the same time and the capacity and the consultants to do those reviews and input. So what I would say is that overall, things are more likely to favor the economic and the business interests when things are complicated, where it involves a lot of process and documents. And FSE is famous for being very rich in documents and process. So it can very quickly swallow a lot of your time just to scrutinize it. Oh, yeah, that's a very deep answer. I really like that. And it gives a good overview for the audition. And I, I just want to mention about the PEFC, so the Program for the Endancement of Forest Certification. Indeed, it will be part of this series. So listeners, stay tuned. <laughs> now we are coming to the end of this specific episode on the FSC certification. And I am curious to know what information is likely to change in the near future so the audience mm -hmm. has to be aware of so one of the most controversial things about fsc was that they allow certification in intact forest landscapes in primary forests originally when fsc was created this was uh, not the case the or original fsc standards did not allow logging in, in primary forest. But eventually they faced pressure to open it up and they, they did allow primary forest logging. Greenpeace and other groups made a, a resolution and that was passed, I, I think almost 10 years ago, they passed a resolution that would uh, restrict the ability of companies to get certified if they were in intact forest landscapes. So these are big areas of forests that don't have roads in it, don't have industrial infrastructure. So this was a way to get around, you know, things being too complicated. Instead of going into a complicated process and complicated standards, you just get a map and you identify where the biggest blocks of unlogged areas were that were still having some natural attributes, still supporting traditional ways of life for Indigenous people. And you just say, we're not going to log it. You know, this is like the last 19, 18 or 19% of the world's forests that don't have roads and, and, you know, any infrastructure in it. Well, we're going to focus on the 80% of the world's forests that already have been made not intact. And so this was a big move and potentially challenging, you know, these companies that still operate in intact forest landscapes, especially in Canada, Brazil, Congo Basin, 
there were some companies that said, wait, hold on, this is going to maybe cause some problems for us. And they really have set about trying to oppose this. So right now, in terms of what's likely to change in the future, we're seeing a lot of FSC economic chamber members push back on this possible restriction of stopping logging in intact forest landscape. So I've just written a book chapter about this. Uh, so very self-serving. I, I can give a, a plug for this uh, book chapter. It's available free to download. I can give you the link for the show notes. But if people want to understand a bit around how that came about, uh, I write a bit about uh, the detail there around how this intact forest landscape concept emerged, how it's being pushed back on uh, by uh, economic interests, and, you know, possible outcomes for the future. But I think it's a big deal that I think is going to be playing out in the near term. Okay. So I also want to remind the audience that it's not because you cut a tree and you replant something that it's um, rebuilt the whole same ecosystem. And it's kind of uh, crazy that this belief is so deep, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, integrated in the mind of the people. And it's mm-hmm. not true, right? It doesn't build the same canopy. You don't have the same bush. You don't have like even that dead wood that nourish all the, uh, mm-hmm. the biodiversity. So I really want people to stop thinking that it's like, oh, we log and we replant. It's okay. No, it's it's really a whole, whole, whole ecosystem. Yeah, <laughs> you really have to look at that as an ecosystem mm-hmm. like a, with life in it mm-hmm. that cannot be regenerated in a few years. So that mm-hmm. I just want to remind that that it's really important to keep in mind. Because of all that, what are the two or three questions you would recommend to ask to force the procurement side to put all the cards on the table? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, you could ask whether companies are making an effort to ensure that their forest products do not come from the very few remaining primary forests that exist and forests that have been harvested in violation of Indigenous people's rights. So those two questions, which is something that I know Canopy has really been leading with, that cuts through a lot of spin. So if you can ask a company, what kind of guarantee can you provide that your forest products don't come from our few remaining primary forests and forests harvested in violation of Indigenous people's rights? you know, certified or not, you're going to get to a very, very important conclusions just on the basis of those two questions. And then finally, I think all companies should be asking themselves, can the products that they make be made with alternatives that don't require virgin fiber? So new trees that have had to be cut down for something. What we're very aware of now in this world is we have so much waste. We have uh, waste paper, we have waste cardboard, we have mountains and mountains of waste textile, all of which are actually quite good at being recycled into products that currently come from new trees. And you're not going to necessarily hear that from a certified forest product organization because they're in the business of marketing certified forest products. But it's absolutely something that we should be asking companies that, you know, how are we making this shift towards a circular economy? 
That's a circular economy where the waste from one activity is used as inputs into producing. So I really think that the more we keep asking these questions, the more likely we are to see companies shift in that direction. Oh, thank you for that. And actually, it also make an echo to uh, my way of implementing circular economy because it has all this social aspect as well. So, and you mentioned uh, indigenous people's rights. So it's like waste, that's resources, but also where does come from your resources and, and, and all this mm -hmm. criteria that has to be very <laughs> looked at mm -hmm. that you have to pay attention mm -hmm. for sure. So basically the best is if the businesses could participate in reducing logging instead of mm -hmm. encouraging it, of course. Mm -hmm. So that's, that could be like almost the, the final word of uh, this uh, episode. But I would like to know mm -hmm. if you have any final recommendations to really wrap up this episode. Thank you. Well, I think, you know, FSC originally was created to reward responsible forest management in terms of the area that has actually been certified in the end, 30 years later, what can we see? Well, most of the areas certified, it actually comes from either plantations, so very intensively managed area that really doesn't have a lot of natural characteristic, or it comes from primary forest logging. So areas that have never been logged before, and it's undergoing logging for the first time neither of which have any evidence that that's going to be sustainable. And so what I would say is there's this missing middle. It's something that's not plantation, but it's not primary. It's forest that has already been logged. There's a vast amount of forest in this world that has already been logged at least once that has the potential to be brought back into being managed in a responsible way. And that's where we need to focus. I want to see FSC focus on rewarding good forest management of already managed forests. Don't be so dependent on areas that are being logged for the first time. Foresters will earn their credibility if they can show that we are able to manage a forest back from being degraded, a degraded second, third, fourth growth forest, Let's show that we can manage a forest in a way that delivers on biodiversity values, that delivers on indigenous people's rights and, and values. You know, that that takes skill. So that's where I would like to see FSC focus its efforts is really not just focusing on, on plantations and not just focusing on primary forest, but on real restoration and ecosystem-based management of that missing middle. Oh, wait. I like that. And I, I feel it's, as you said, it takes skills and collaboration. And so probably also with indigenous people and all of that to yeah, regenerate in a way what's how you use the soil as well and the wood resource, I would say. So th thank you so much, Peter Wood. It's, it was really a great interview. I feel that there is a lot of insights to, to have from, from it. So hope to see you very soon in another episode. And I wish you the best uh, since then. Thank you. Okay, thank you for having me. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And if it's the case, be sure to subscribe where you get your podcasts and leave us a five stars review to help for its visibility. You also probably have at least two or three friends or colleagues to share this episode with. 
Of course, feel free to get in touch by the lookforloops.com website or drop me a line on Colleen Regu LinkedIn profile. Last but not least, be sure to check the show notes with the links and resources. Until next time.